0: Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 161, week 161, volume 161, number fucking 161. Hey guys, how's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Scott of Earth Crisis, Sect, and also of Tooth and Claw, and that will be coming up later in the show. As we do every week, we kick off with feedback, questions, what's been going on. Not a lot, but I have to give a massive shout out to everyone that's listening. Whether you're a new listener or an old listener, thank you for tuning in. We're seeing our numbers consistently grow week by week, so thank you. If you're streaming it once or you're streaming it a few times, whether you're downloading it, listening to it, half listening to it and then listening to it all later. Thank you to every single one of you. Without you guys, this show is impossible. Otherwise, it's just me sitting in a room rambling. So thank you to each and every one of you. Enough of that. Let's get into the main part of the show. This week, I got to sit down with Scott of Earth Crisis Sect and Tooth and Claw. First things first, thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. So Scott is part of Earth Crisis, and Earth Crisis are one of those bands that I have loved since I can remember. Earth Crisis, in case you are unaware, are pioneers and legendary band in the metalcore, hardcore genre. They formed around 94-95, they've had 8 albums and 4 EPs. To say this band is important is an understatement. They helped along with other bands birth the sound of metalcore that we know today. They're also important for what they stand for, which is vegan, straight edge, social awareness and political awareness. Scott is also part of SECT who have three releases so far to their name, and they formed around 2017. Scott's most recent project is titled Tooth and Claw. They are about to release their debut album, which is going to be titled Dream of Ascension, comes out next week, May 21st, through Good Fight Music. Now the thing about having Scott on the show was it ticked off a big fucking bucket list moment for me as a fan but also for the show. This chat was so relaxed, so entertaining, so engaging. It exceeded every expectation I possibly could have had. I am fucking over the moon with this conversation. I really enjoy it. I hope you do too. That chat with Scott is coming up now. So, you know, everyone gets kind of loosely the same start-off question. And basically, you know, I don't mean a heavy band in any means, but at a young age, did you have a band that opened music existing for you? You know, for me, it was Aerosmith at the age of five, became obsessed with. I don't know why, but that band for me helped me launch into further bands, which got me into metal and hardcore. Was there a band for you like that?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, and it's hard to, it's hard to really pinpoint one because like my mom was a pretty young mom. So I was listening to like a lot of like, what was cool in like the late seventies, like, you know, she was, she was still into music pretty heavily. And, um, uh, the story that she likes to tell is that she went and saw Led Zeppelin when I was, you know, in the womb in her, in her stomach. (laughs) And so, I don't know if that had something to do with it, but um, I just remember mainly her listening to a lot of vinyl and really liking a lot of the stuff she listened to, which was era specific, like uh, like Styx and Foreigner and, um, you know, just like stuff that I guess somebody that was 17, 18, 19, 20 would have listened to in like the late 70s, early 80s, you know. Mm. Um, but I remember really liking a lot of that stuff, like Yeah, Foreigner and Sticks and and bands like that. And then my uncle gave me um, For Those About to Rock on vinyl when I was Mm. probably like seven or eight, and I loved that record. Um, But I liked all sorts of stuff. Like, I was super into Van Halen when I was little, and that's what made me want to play guitar. Like, I think on the radio I had heard, like, the opening guitar um, bit to Unchained. And I was like, Oh yeah. I like, how, and I remember I, I went and took guitar lessons and I was so mad because I was like, no, I want to play that. And I, and, and my guitar teacher was obviously super into Van Hale and He was like, Oh, we need, we need to work up to it. And I was really frustrated. I was like, I don't understand why let's just start teaching me this. And, um, <laughs> I, you know, obviously it was that was ridiculous, but that's what I was so bored and wasn't interested in all the basics that I just wanted to jump and dive right into that. So Yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't like maybe one band per se. I just really loved like a lot of the stuff that I was hearing as a kid. I remember a lot of it like sticking with me. And I mean, like, like I mentioned sticks, like, you know, they were like, I just remember very specifically my mom listening to them a lot. And I really loved like everything that I heard like from them when I, you know, when I was that age and foreigner too, that was like when four came out and it was like, a huge album that was on the you know the radio all the time, and I really liked all that stuff. So I think my mom being really young kind of shaped music being important to me, you know, at an early age because she was still young enough where it was super important to her, you know. So I I realized like oh this is something, this is something you know that you're supposed to really care about, you know.
0: Yeah, and we're also talking about a time. You know, it's going to shock the younger generation listening, but there was a time when you know radio was a big play and magazines and yeah and, and fans. Oh, for
1: sure. Yeah, you'd go you'd go for a car ride, and whatever they were playing was all you knew. That was your that, you know, you you didn't especially when you're only like seven or eight years old. Like you didn't you didn't have any other way of hearing music other than what you heard between when you were driving from point A to point B, whatever they decided to play, that was your window into the music world, you know?
0: So obviously, you know, guitar and Van Halen kind of went in unison, but what were you like with discovering music at a young age? Were you very sponge-like? You know, once you you mentioned things like Journey and stuff, did you just deep dive and become obsessed with, or were you constantly evolving and switching from one band to another?
1: Yeah, I I was more constantly evolving. I never... I never really got obsessed with, with anything until probably until Metallica, like Metallica, Metallica was the band, like, I think so many of people, my age, you know, like that was the band that I was like, Oh, I need to, I need to get all their records. I need to really figure these guys out. Like, you know, go back and from the beginning and all the way up to where they currently were, which was, I think when I first started getting into them, I think it was right around like master of puppets had come out. Mm hmm. And so, you know, I went back and just like loved, you know, Kill Them All and Ride the Lightning. And um, and then when Injustice for All came out, like I was uh, obsessed with it. Like I was, I was like their biggest salesman. I was like telling everybody at school, like, you have to like this record. This is the greatest record of all time, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> I loved, it. I mean, and I still do. It, the, but they're one of those bands I think like so many people have that it's not anything that they did. It, it, I don't care so much about the things that, that, you know, their change over the years and all that stuff. I mean, I think that's natural progression, but I just really wore them out, you know, like, mm. I mean, they were everything to me. Like, that's how I learned how to play guitar. Really. I just wanted to figure out their songs. And so I would buy tablature books. And, but they were the first band that I I'd say I became obsessed with up, up until that point, I just kind of liked records, you know, certain bands, records. I didn't care too much about, going back and listening to their whole catalogs or anything. I was like, no, I'm happy with this. I don't care, you know, but until I, until I reached the, until I found them, then I started getting obsessed with, and then they even spawned off a whole other, you know, because then they're, they were wearing Misfits shirts and they Mm. were wearing, you know, like, so stuff that those guys were doing, I was like, well, these guys love the Misfits. I have to, and then I fell in love with the Misfits and started getting more into punk rock and dead Kennedys. And, you know, so they really were like a huge gateway gateway band not just for me I think anyone in my generation you know not only did they open us up to like thrash metal but also all the bands that inspired them you know by wearing their shirts and stuff we all wanted to know like what's up with what's up with this band what's up with the misfits what's up with dead kennedys what's up with you know all these other artists that they were always kind of representing
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that sometimes we forget nowadays is, you know, in that time when social media wasn't a thing, the influences and the liner notes and the, as you said, T-shirts played an important part in someone like yourself or a lot of people's discovery as well. Where were you with your guitar, though? I mean, you're mentioning that you start getting into tablature and, you know, focusing on learning Metallica. Are you still pursuing lessons or are you at this stage of Metallica Discovery purely in your room playing
1: yeah it was purely in my room like I, I had taken lessons like I had mentioned before when I was you know like eight eight years old probably between eight and nine for about a year and I was just so annoyed with them and frustrated because it just it wasn't fun you know you were just learning real basic boring stuff and like this real old outdated like you know 50s and 60s but really, not even fun versions of those songs, like the super basic versions. And obviously, you have to. That's, that was the right way for me to, to be taught. But it, um, it just wasn't satisfying. Um, so I put the guitar away for a couple years and then didn't really pick it up again until I was about 11 or 12. Mm. Um, and it was just, it was sitting in the closet. And I always still wanted to play, but I, I think I had reached a point where I was like, wow, it's just too much. You know, it's just too much work. But yeah, Metallica was like that band. That I was like, I want to, I want to do that. I want to make that sound, you know. I want to, I want to do like that chuggy, those chuggy sounds that they're doing, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, I, uh, I just picked it up and and started like kind of fooling around and trying to figure out songs. And I, I don't remember if maybe somebody had a tablature book and let me borrow it, or if I actually bought one. I don't remember where I got it, but I did get a tablature book and really sit down and put a lot of effort into trying to figure out how to play the songs.
0: So when did um, you when did you switch from you know wanting to replicate and be like Metallica and you know maybe Van Halen still a little bit to actually mm-hmm. becoming really focused on this being more than just a hobby you know what i mean like more than just something you did when did you switch into it being an obsession per se
1: um i think there was a lot of factors with it you know cuz I and I and I again I don't think this is very unique maybe to me I think a lot of a lot of people that get into like hardcore and punk and thrash metal you know it's it's a similar story but yeah I just became obsessed with the whole culture of it you know and and then I started liking like just you know from Metallica I mean certainly I liked like Slayer and never really was a huge Megadeth guy but I started getting more into like Testament and Sacred Reich and you know like more like thrash kind of bands and then a lot of like thrash crossover bands like you know DRI and like The Accused and and stuff like that um you know so I sort of went I guess backwards from where a lot of people go I feel like a lot of people go from like punk rock to like you know maybe like thrash metal and then move on upwards where I started kind of at metal and then went backwards down to like hardcore and punk and then I, I got into like Dead Kennedys and everything, but um, and, you know, to the, and exploited and stuff like that. But I think like the obsession part came in with the whole culture, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like, I loved playing guitar, but I didn't really, you know, like many kids, I I didn't really feel like I had like a very bright future ahead of me. You know, I wasn't the kind of kid that was going to go to college, you know, like my family just didn't have the means to, to send me, you know, and, and I, and I was surrounded by a lot of other kids that were in the same boat as me. Like, ian and eric who were both in earth crisis with me those guys we all grew up in the same neighborhood and we were all kind of in the same boat i think where we just didn't we didn't really feel like we had much ahead of us and the only thing that we seemed to ever get any real pats on the back was like music stuff we were doing so it kind of it kind of kept motivating us to get better you know people would say you know like we would get together and play songs together in people's garages or basements and you know people would comment positively about it and i think that you know, that was the only real positive reinforcement we got, you know, at that time, it was like, all right, well, maybe we should, maybe we should try to put everything we have into this, you know, and it, we love this. This seems to be us. It's a, it's a good fit, you know, college isn't really going to happen careers. Eh, we're not really that excited about that idea, you know? <laughs> so it just kind of, yeah. And then we just got immersed in this world and it, yeah, it did. It became like an obsession, you know, like, can we get better? Like, you know, what can we do? Can we, can we form a band that people like, you know, could we, could we possibly put a record out, you know? Um, yeah, it was just like, you know, a lot of the, the right place at the right time stuff like Syracuse was a, a weird, like C C grade market as far as like touring, but we had like a huge club. It was like a a world renowned club that every band that did a tour came through, you know, and played the lost Horizon. so, it was, it was like, you know, you'd see Danzig or you'd see, I mean, so many bands like wrathchild America and all these bands that we loved at the time. We, we would get to go see those bands and, you know, it would be 150 people there. Like we always got like cool shows, but they were really intimate because we lived in such a small town, you know. So it was like, yeah, we were just kind of in the right place at the right time, I think, for 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 young kids like us to get obsessed with a with an underground music scene.
0: Well, you know, the the music scene was a question I had. Of you know, a lot of people listening remember the moment that you know they were into music and then they saw it in a live setting, and then that just cemented it for them. Do you remember mm-hmm. the one of the first shows that really cemented the live setting for you?
1: Yeah, there were. I mean, they were um, mostly they were local bands or, or semi-local bands, like from Buffalo and stuff. There was a there was a band from Buffalo called Zero Tolerance and they would come to Syracuse and play. And, um, they were, I mean, to this day they were a huge influence on me personally, but earth crisis and any of the bands that I did, like you had mentioned early on, like the forefront demo, like everybody that was in that band, we worship zero tolerance. I mean, to the point where they were, that demo is full of like pretty blatant ripoffs of zero tolerance <laughs> stuff. And, um, but they were one of the, the best to me to this day, in my opinion, one of the best live bands I ever saw. Like it was just mind blowing. They were like, you know, it was that, it was that moment that every, that everybody has with some band, but they were the band for me that I got to see them live. And I was like, that's it. Like these, this, this is what every band should be like live. You know, they were, they were exactly what, cause you know, you, you, other bands you've seen that you might really kind of worship and then you see them live and it just doesn't, they just, it didn't deliver, you know? Mm. And, these guys were actually better live than they were, than their records, you know? So they were a huge one, huge band. And I know like Scott Vogel from terror. I mean, he grew up in Buffalo. He always cites zero Actually, they just did a, they just did a, like an EP where they covered a zero tolerance song on their, on mm-hmm. the EP. So yeah, they're, they're huge, they're for our area. I think they're a huge band for most, most people my age. Like they were real, they were real pivotal.
0: Was um, Zero Tolerance also the band that, you know, it's one thing, you know, being blessed with having international or big time acts coming through, but was it a band like Zero Tolerance that also showed you that if you worked hard at it, that you could, you know, in a way, make a relative living and tour off the back of your passion?
1: Yeah, I don't know that we thought that we could maybe make a living because, but they, they definitely taught me a lot of stuff because... I remember we would travel too. So we would, we would go, they would play Syracuse and then they would play Albany, which is two hours away, you know, Buffalo, basically Buffalo, Syracuse and Albany are all two hours from each other. So a lot of bands from that area, you those, that's the three places that you'll play like pretty frequently. And um, we would go see him in Albany. And I, I think the thing I took away from a most was like, you know, there, there couldn't have been a hundred people at any time I ever saw them, but they were like, they played like they were playing a stadium, you know, it was like, they never, they never half hearted it. Like it was, it was like full on every time you saw them, like they gave it 110%. Like, and, and it was, and it was genuine. It wasn't like phoned in moves or anything like that. Like these dudes like genuinely loved playing Mm. and like that really struck a chord with me. I was like, you have to actually really love it. Like that, you you can't like phone it in. And, you know, we've all seen bands that do that. They got choreographed type moves and it comes off feeling like that. It doesn't, it doesn't feel genuine. It's not really from the heart, you know? And, and these guys, you could tell like, man, they, their whole day was spent like, I can't wait until I'm up on stage for 45 minutes. And then they, when they got that privilege of getting up there and playing, they appreciated it. And that always struck a chord with me. Like I was always like, no, you ha- this is a privilege. Like, to get up and play it doesn't matter if last night there was 300 people and today there's 50, like you gotta, you gotta enjoy this cause this, this could be your last show, you know? And, um, that, that really, yeah. Seeing them, that really always struck home. I mean, to this day, I mean, I'm 46 years old and you know, they're not always all winners, you know, sometimes you show up and there's 30 people there, you know? <laughs> but, but I always still have a good time playing.
0: Well, I mean, it, it is, like you said, you know, I know shows I've been to and you're watching the band play and they look like they don't want to be on stage and it leaves an impact right. with you that next time they're yeah. in town, you don't want to go, you know, it's exactly
1: the because they, they looked, yeah, you know, if they're it, it, you don't want to believe that they're only there for the glory, right? Mm. You want to believe that they're there because they love doing what they're doing, you know, and there was, I, there was a handful of bands that, that always inspired me in that way, you know. Um, a friend and I were actually talking about like the band Into Another today, and they were one that's similar. I mean, like I'd see them play, and they were an incredible band um, it, as far as like talent goes and stuff. But they always played like they were having a great time, and I had again I'd seen them play for 500 people, and I'd seen them play for 30 people, and every time it was the same. You know, they they just loved playing, and it that kind of attitude really struck me. Like I was like, no, you have to actually enjoy this. Mm-hmm. like you you know it, it can't be and of course there's nights when you don't i mean nobody's expecting you to be superhuman but for the most part yeah i've always enjoyed playing you know whether it be 15 people at a coffee shop or you know like a, a festival in indonesia for 40,000. you mm-hmm. know i like i i i just like it i like getting up there and i like playing my guitar you know so that that was the that was the moment that was the band that really kind of yeah, I never really, because I knew those guys weren't really making a living. You know, I was like, well, these guys aren't, these guys are probably not, they probably have other jobs, you know, but, but I knew that they loved it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I, I appreciated the fact that they would play for 20 people and it was like, that's what they were living to do. Whatever they were doing on the side to make money, that, that was just the vehicle to get them to this point right now where they're on stage playing.
0: Yeah, I also think, you know, we we sometimes forget that we are, in every avenue of the heavy music realm, we are underground music. So making money also is probably a reality that a lot of kids mightn't realize, that unless you're achieving the Metallica side of thing or Lamb of God or Hatebreed side of thing, making money, you're not in it for that. You're in it for the passion and the the want, really.
1: Yeah, and the lifestyle, you know, it's Mm. prolonging the, prolonging the realities of life, you know, I mean, that, that was a big part of it for me. It's like, I I always knew I would have the rest of my life to work a nine to five job, you know, so if I could get by and pay the rent, sometimes not even, I would be happy to do that. Cause I saw what everyone else I grew up with was doing and they were working bad jobs for bad money. You know, at least I was like my, you know, master of my own destiny. You know, mm. I was waking up in a new city every day and I had made my own choices. Nobody told me I had to do X or Y. I was there because I wanted to be, you know? And so for me, that was a big part of it too. Like I loved playing music, but I also loved the lifestyle. You know, mm. I, I didn't, I didn't want to be like an average Joe. I was like, hey, you know, we all have the rest of our lives. These are moments you're going to remember on your deathbed, not how many hours you logged at Blockbuster last week or whatever,
0: <laughs> you know? Like
1: th- these, are the mo- these are the moments you're going to be like, wow, I did some cool stuff you
0: know well i mean you're you know starting to get into some of the bands you certainly have and do plenty of stuff you know we mentioned there earlier you mentioned forefront you know that was kind of per se probably the first real band that you did yes yeah for sure and that rolled into framework now Mm -hmm. framework was that a band that were really kind of were you guys making yards like were you getting out and playing shows regularly? Like, were you building a bit of momentum because framework essentially became earth crisis. So what was framework yeah. like in its day? It, it was actually, you know, it's funny.
1: Cause the older I get, the, the more I realize how short lived it was. But I think until recently, I always thought of it as like such a big chunk of my life, but it, I think, I think the whole thing probably lasted a year in reality. Mm. Maybe. You know, all that all that time period from like ninety one to ninety two, it it so much stuff happened. But it but it feels like three, four years worth of stuff, but it was just in a year, you know. So framework was I think we I mean we probably only played three or four shows all together, and I don't I might be wrong, but I don't think we ever left Syracuse. Mm. Um but we were gaining momentum. Um, we were lucky enough to get on, like, I think our first show was like a pretty big one. It, I think shelter maybe was the headliner and it was a good, it was a good show, like for, especially for a young band of, of like 14, 15 year old kids, you know? Um, and so after that show, I remember somebody, and I don't remember what label they were from, but somebody came up to us and we like, Hey, we want to put out a seven inch and we, we were just floored, you know? Like we were, we were, I was like, what do you like, does this mean I'm rich? Like, you know, cause at that point I thought it was, if, you know, you just thought when you were a kid, like if somebody put a record out, they were rich, mm. you know, that, that meant they were rich, you know? And I was like, Oh, I think we, I think we did it. I think we're rich immediately. You know, we didn't realize like, <clears throat> you know, you know, that somebody putting a record out, wasn't all that difficult to put a, <laughs> to put a record together, <laughs> but to us it seemed like a huge deal and we were super excited about it. And, um, I don't remember, you know. I, I think I think all the records came out after the band had broke up, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, but we were like, we were just always like not really. We we knew that that band wasn't really at its full potential. It was sort of like a, well, we felt like it wasn't, you know. It, like we always wanted a singer that could do this or you know somebody. You know, we we always had like other ideas. I don't think any of us were ever quite satisfied with it, um, and so. Yeah, when the opportunity came for, you know, when, when Carl approached us about helping him out, something just kind of clicked there in that, you know, with that line, with that unit together, we felt we all kind of felt like, oh, this is, this is kind of more, this feels more real, you know, this feels more like, like correct, whereas form frameworks always seemed like we needed to tweak it, there was something missing that we didn't like, you know.
0: Well, I mean, Earth Crisis clearly clicked because one of the big things that Earth Crisis has always deemed is a big influence and importance step for future bands that came along the way. I mean, that's got to be quite a thing to pinch yourself at, that you look back and you hear all these people say, well, if it wasn't for Earth Crisis album, you know, Destroy the Machines or breed the animal uh, breed the killers sorry we wouldn't be a band today i mean that is insane and massive i think that's amazing
1: it it is yeah and it's it's hard to really um it, it's hard to really kind of not that you don't believe it i believe what people are saying but it's it's hard to really i guess put it in perspective from our point of view because i think i think something else i realized fairly recently with with talking to people more and what, like at that era, like what our, what our motivation was and like what our goals were. And it, it was like every other band. Right. I mean, when you start a band, you're really, you're not, most people aren't thinking world domination, right? Like we're going to be internationally known. People in Japan are going to hear this and really enjoy this record. Like you're just trying to impress your friends and, and maybe get a local following where a hundred people can come out and that would be enough for you, you know, for most bands. Like And that was kind of our thing, too. And um, even a lot of like our controversial stuff, like when we first started it, it, a lot of like lyrically and stuff like that, it was it wasn't not to diminish it, not that it wasn't heartfelt or true, but a lot of it was like trying to impress our friends kind of thing. You know, we grew up we were in a straight edge scene and, you know, we were always sitting around talking about certain bands and how how their lyrics were so hard and this this line was so hard in that song. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we wrote one of the hardest songs ever and said, you know, and said, you know, it was it was impressing your friends, you know, to that level. We had no idea. I mean, honestly, zero idea that anybody in Europe would ever hear one of these songs or that, anyone, (laughs) you know, in Australia would ever hear one of these songs. You know, it it wasn't until like Destroy the Machines, I think that we really started realizing like, oh. Yeah, this is like international reach. You know, people are asking us to come play these other places. So, yeah. So when people say stuff like that, it, I mean, it is as awesome as it is and it makes you feel very accomplished, obviously. But, yeah, it's, it's sort of funny to, to hear it, too, when you think like, oh, man, we were just having a good time and trying to make our friends giggle a little bit and also be excited, you know. I mean, that, it wasn't, again, I don't want to diminish and make it sound like it was a joke. Like, we, we weren't, we were serious, but yeah, there's that level of let's impress our friends and say some crazy thing in the song about your burning body shall light the path to a glorious new dawn, you know? I mean, I, I literally remember somebody writing that line at practice and and us all being like, that's the craziest thing, you know? like <laughs> we, we, we were aware that that was a wild line to put in a song, you know? It, but again it was just we we knew that our 1520 friends were going to think that was awesome. So that's why we did it.
0: I think it's you know important to remember that the the way that earth crisis's name spread was before social media was out. So it was organic and natural and it was done not only through the music that you were playing as in the style, the sound, the dynamics, but it was also because you guys were a polarizing band. Uh, people, would, sure. people would people yeah. would get into it, and they'd either love and hate it because of the social and political standpoints that you guys had. The fact that vegan and straight edge, and mm-hmm. it it must have been a bit weird to be a band that was polarizing on so many aspects in those early years.
1: Yeah, it, well, it was it was surprising because we, like I was just mentioning, like we didn't we didn't understand. You know, like we wrote all this stuff literally with, with friends in mind and people in mind that we knew we we're going to think it was awesome. And people would tell us, oh, this is great. We kind of all thought we were all on the same wavelength as far as like, again, it's so hard to talk about without trying to make it seem like it, like we were goofing around. We weren't, we were, we were just, we were just purposely trying to, to take it a little bit over the line. Mm. You know, we knew like, let's, you know, it, it was a very Slayer-esque mentality lyrically you know where we and we got that like we would listen to slayer we never once really believed slayer were like these satan worshiping like you know like we never believed that we knew that they were there was a a a tongue-in-cheek aspect to them not that they weren't not that they were a joke band but there was a little bit of let's step over the line and and that was where we were coming from but yeah then when we started venturing outside our world we didn't really understand where a lot of the um the hate was coming from, you know, we, we, we were just like, well, come on, lighten up. You know, we're just, but, but a lot of it wasn't even just the lyrics. It was the musical style at the time too. Like Mm -hmm. we were, we, people were really upset by the fact that we were so metal sounding, you know, it was, it was a big problem. And I think a lot, to be honest, I think that had a lot more to do with why certain places had a problem with us early on than not. They, They just hated this whole, like, uh, we were, we were tainting their, their wonderful hardcore scene with our, with our metal nonsense, you know? <laughs> and, and, and yeah, we, de- you know, I remember the first, one of the first out of town shows we played, we played, um, one of the bi- first big hardcore festivals that I can think of, if not maybe the first was a uh, fest called more than music festival in Dayton, Ohio. And, um, we played and had a great show. I mean, that was one of those like turning point moments where I think we all looked at each other afterwards and we were like, I think people like our band, you know? Um, and, uh, but like all of like the, you know, people were all the older bands, the bands that we liked. Honestly, I remember being a bit hurt by it, but they were like throwing stuff at us, hmm. you know, kind of sneaky from, you know, from the sides of the stage. It was all like, you know, a lot of like the New Jersey bands at the time, like lifetimes and resurrection. And we're, we're cool with a lot of those people now like Rob Fish is, is a friend and we got to know him through like 108 and stuff. And I don't know if he had anything to do with it, but that crew of bands at the time, um, Friends had told us afterwards, oh, man, they were throwing, like, confetti at you and you know, whatever while we were playing. We didn't even – we had no clue because the show was so crazy. But afterwards, we kind of – a lot of people were telling us that they were doing it. And we were just like, what? You know, we didn't understand. Like, we didn't understand where, where the hate was coming from. Um, but I think a lot of it was that, like, looking back on it and then hearing what people have had to say over the years. I think of a, a lot of it was. It was like this weird territorial thing with a, with a style of music, you know? We were like these young kids that came came out of kind of left field and started playing like this heavier metal chuggy style of style of music and I don't know, they had a problem with it for whatever reason. <laughs> like yeah, but so yeah, I think for us it yeah, it was it was confusing cuz we we came from a place where we thought we just thought everybody was going to get it, like get where our heads were at, you know. But People definitely did not.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that's the strange thing. You know, what you guys did is now not considered weird. You know, it's the tried and tested path that you guys kind of helped initiate. You, with bands like Vision of Disorder and stuff like this, I think are the crucial players in this sound becoming, you know, household sounds nowadays. I think what was also important for a band like yourself, well, I personally do, is the fact that I'm not saying bands weren't, but you guys were a band that had a message, whether it was to the extreme or not, it had a message. And I think that possibly also brought you guys some flack because I remember people saying, yeah, I love the music, but I hate the lyrical content. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It yeah. has a message. No,
1: and it, yeah. And that's to get back, get back to the point where I say, I don't want to ever diminish it. That's what mm. I mean, because it's not like we were, it's not like we weren't serious 110% about, animal rights or a drug-free lifestyle or, you know, human liberation struggles or, you know, environmental issues. Like those things were, I mean, those things were discussed like from day one, that this is what this band is going to be about. You know, we, we are going to be about, you know, earth, animal and human liberation. Like that's, that's what this band is going to be about. But there was a tongue in cheek aspect to it. And, mm-hmm. it. and and then when I say that, I don't mean, Again, I don't mean to diminish the message, but there was there was an aspect to it where we wanted to be a little bit uh, Slayer-esque. You Mm -hmm. know, we wanted to take we wanted to take the imagery up a notch and take the anger, you know, really drive the anger home with some harsh lyrical content, you know. And um, again, I don't that wasn't formulated. Mm -hmm. I I, like when I look back on it now, I just can deconstruct it and I can see, you know, it's just that was the way Carl wrote lyrics Mm. and we all, we all understood each other. We all understood where the other was coming from. I knew Carl didn't really want to go out and set people on fire. Well, that might be wrong. He did want to, (laughs) but he wasn't going to, (laughs) you know, (laughs) he wasn't, he wasn't homicidal. You know, I knew that, like I knew that he didn't really want to kill people in the name of animal rights. I knew that, but, but it was cathartic to talk about in our music. Mm. And, and, you know, it was it was cathartic to, to bring up and, and it was an outlet, you know, for, you know, we, we all get mad, right? and You say crazy shit like I want to kill that fucking guy or whatever, you know, mm. and you don't nobody means that. But for some reason, when we did that musically and especially in the hardcore scene, it was taken very literally. There was no room for artistic expression. There was no room for exactly that carth- carthetic rage, you know, cathartic rage. Like there was no room for that, it seemed. And I I never understand. I still don't understand it now because it's like that's what it was. And it was so clear, I think, to most people that that's what it was. But there was a large group of people that wanted to glom on to that and use it as their vehicle to try to blacklist a and, mm. oh, these guys are monsters. They want to hurt people. They're pushing a, a message full of hate. I mean, there was a million bands before us that were pushing pushing angry messages, right? I mean, yeah. it, we were certainly not the originators of, of that idea. And, we, and to be fair, we weren't the originators of the style either. I mean, we certainly borrowed a page from Chromags. We certainly borrowed a, a few pages from Integrity. We certainly borrowed uh, pages from, you know... Um, band lesser known bands like overcast and Mm. uh i mean the zero tolerance i mean these there was a band from rochester called betrayed that was doing a a very metal so there were a lot of bands i think we were just we were just one of the first ones that sort of took it farther you know Mm. those bands all all stayed semi-local to their to their area aside from like integrity and chromags obviously but even like Overcast, I mean, they never went too far. They were a fantastic band, but they never really went too far outside of Massachusetts. I think they might have done a few U.S. tours, but still, I always try to give credit to that because people, as much as I appreciate it, we, were, we, were, we, we took a, and put a twist on maybe what some of those bands were doing musically, but we were inspired by them. Like there were bands doing the kind of the metal hardcore mixture, like definitely way before we were. So,
0: you know, I'm just so glad that you're a band that played an important part of me. Um, and I'm, I love it. You know, personally, I love it. Um, I think, Thank it's, you. I think it's needed. It's a breath of breath of fresh air. Um, just want to touch on a couple of the albums. Cause I'd be, you know, as a fanboy, I'd be an idiot not to, um, <laughs> One in particular that we've already mentioned is Destroy the Machines, which, you know, I was doing some back reading, as I always do, before interviews. And it says in some places that it is deemed Victory's all-time best-selling album. That's fucking insane. Like, that is massive.
1: I don't think that's true. Maybe at a point in time... But I can't imagine that that it's outsold like a band like Remembering Never or, or like mm. Thursday. You know, I mean, the, it, I, I know I know the numbers of of what it's what it's done. I don't think it's anywhere close to those bands. I think that there that maybe have may have been true at a point, you know. But I think once Victory kind of started taking new <laughs> taking new steps into new territory as far as like you know the kinds of people that they were reaching. Yeah, I, I don't think that i don't I don't think that we even came close truthfully to, to like some of the you know to some of the remembering never numbers and bands like that. But yes, i I do think at a time that that it it probably was. That's probably true up to a point.
0: Well, I mean, you guys, one thing you can't deny is you guys played a very important part in the label Victory's development and way of becoming a well-known label, not to say it wasn't before that stage, but, I think you guys helped garner a lot more attention. And I feel like the nineties from 95 to about 98, you guys from the outside looking in were really groundswell momentum to the top of the ranks. It looks like, I don't know what it felt like from the inside out, but you know, were you guys kind of getting higher and higher and higher?
1: Yeah. But I, I think it was the kind of thing that we didn't, we didn't realize until it was after the fact either, you know, like Again, I mean, up until, you know, we were just, we were just kids like having a great time, you know, and, and we were just floored every opportunity that we got. We, we were just floored that we had that opportunity, you know, we, and we, we were super naive and lots of people took advantage of us on a financial level, you know, and, and that's, I don't know, like this that's a whole av- other, other podcast, I suppose, but you know, it, it i think that's part of the game right with with a lot of labels and stuff is you get the band when they're young and naive and they don't realize how much money they're generating and you know 600 people are at the show and you and the band walks out with 300 bucks you know Mm. and we thought that was amazing we thought we were like we just got paid 300 dollars. you know we were we were floored i remember distinctly the a, a show where early on we we played and we we had about 600 people at the place and somebody gave us 300 bucks, filled up our tank of gas. And we were just like, can you believe that guy filled up our tank of gas? He was the nicest guy that we've ever met. You know, like we <laughs> just, it was, you know, and then it was about three years later, I was like, wait a second, <laughs> let me do the math here. You know, and we, but I think that it, yeah, we didn't, we didn't realize, you know, until it was, until it was sort of, it was just undeniable. I mean, it got to a point, Um, people from Caroline distribution was the big distributor at the time. And, um, we were in, we played a show in New York city and I was right, I think right before we recorded destroy the machines and, um, somebody from the, the Caroline distribution came to the show and and was like, man, you, you guys are like, you know, fight that firestorm EP is just, it's huge. I mean, it's flying. Like we can't keep them in stock, you know? and they gave us some number of how many we had sold in the last couple months. And I I mean, I think our heads exploded. We were just like, what do you mean? You know, like we had no idea, you know, back then nobody talked about that stuff. I mean, not, not to victory's fault. He was also of the size where I don't think he kept too much track and didn't give sales updates to bands and things. Cause why? Right. Everybody was going to sell a thousand copies and that was that, you know, but we were at the point where you know a person from the dis-, dis like distribution center was coming to us and telling us like oh you guys just sold you know fifteen thousand copies last month or whatever <laughs> you know and we were just like what like we couldn't believe it, um, but yeah I don't think it still wasn't really sinking you know like that we were we just thought it was it was fun, you know we we're like this is great people are coming to see us and people seem to like us you know, and um somewhere after Des- destroy the machines I think we started getting like phone calls from other record labels and um bit like big record labels that we really like you know respected and cuz we were always like metal guys so like if somebody from earache records calls you you know that to us that was like that was like holy cow like this is huge you know we're we're a huge band you know um so earache records just called my house and left a message on my answering machine you know <laughs> like we couldn't believe like that's where i think we started realizing like oh, this might have potential outside of just, like, having a good time, you know?
0: Well, I mean, you talk about labels, and, you know, you guys did two on Victory, and then, you know, a big label, and it's still considered by many one of the biggest labels. You guys switched to Roadrunner. But then Mm -hmm. um, you guys did Breed the Killers, which... You know, I think he's kind of missed by a lot of Earth Crisis fans. I think it's kind of skipped over. That and Slither, I think, are both two albums that kind of get missed a bit. Um, yeah. But that, that one seemed, Breed the Killer seemed a bit, you know, a bit like there was a lot going on, you know, you're on road runner, then you get dropped by road runner before it comes out. You're with Andy Sneap, but Andy Sneap wasn't mm-hmm. at the stage that Andy Sneap was nowadays or looked at now.
1: Yeah, no, he wasn't, wasn't even no, close. <laughs> he was just a little yeah.
0: guy from Scandinavia.
1: Well, we liked it. We liked him because he did a band called iron monkey that we mm. loved. Um Yeah. And so we were, we all loved iron monkey. And so, the label asked us like, Hey, what would you think about, you know, having this guy, Andy Sneak produce it? We're like, I don't know. What's he done? And they send us some stuff like, Oh, stuck mojo. yeah it sounds good, but not really my, you know, I don't know. You know? And then they were like, Oh, and he did this thing, iron monkey, but he doesn't really want to, that, that doesn't really showcase his talent. And we were like, wait, we love that album. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> we're in a hundred percent. You know, like that was the one we were like, Oh, we love that record. Yes. hundred percent. We'll do this. You know I mean? So, for him, I mean, he got that job off of a a bad recording. Honestly, that he was like, "Oh, I hope nobody ever hears that I did this." You know, I mean, but that was, that was the ba- that was the record that we were like, "Yes, we will work with Andy Sneap if he did Iron Monkey." <laughs> you know, oh. and, and uh, but what? yeah, uh, it, it was. Uh, well, sorry, what was your question going to be? I sort of interrupted you.
0: No, you're right. I mean, it seems like it was a pivotal pivotal point for you guys because. You know, from an outside looking in, you switch labels and then it doesn't seem like the label really backs you guys. The label starts switching gears to mainstream radio friendly stuff. They drop you guys. You go back to victory. Um, Yeah. How do you look back at Breed the Killers, you know, with experience and age now on that period of time for the band?
1: Uh, I, I personally think that record was a miss. Like, I think it had a lot more potential than it had. And I, and I know some people will argue, you know, like I, I, um, our friend, uh, Danny that does holy mountain printing, he does our merch store. It's, you know, he, he's always telling me that it's one of his favorites. Like my, and I, I've heard that before from other people too, but I think it had a lot of potential, but I think given all the circumstances that were going on around the record, I don't think it really met our expectations or or where it could have gone. And a little bit of it was childish being, you know, us being childishly stubborn. Um, Like a lot of it, we were pushing back in, in, in in the wrong way against the label because we were also kind of nervous about our reputation. Like at that point, not many bands from our world had taken that leap, you know, had gone from a label like victory to a label like roadrunner. And so people were expecting, I think us to basically do slither, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's what they were. They thought, Oh, these guys are going to, you know, this label's going to get their hands on them and manipulate them and turn them into some sort of like, you know, late nineties radio metal thing. And, um, so we actually tried kind of to go the other way with it. Um, and I think everyone would in the band would agree with me on this. So I don't think I'm, I mean, Carl, we've all talked about it before, but I, I think Carl will even agree that, you know, the, the vocal performance on it ended up being a bit stiff just because we so much didn't want to come off. Like we were, um, trying to do something sell outy, I suppose, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. <laughs> um, so it, you know it ended up having more of like a death metal kind of mm. monotone thing going on than than um where we really wanted it to be or or honestly where we Carl was capable of going and like especially coming off a record like Gamoras where even though he stays in in a gear you know in fifth gear the whole time there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, exciting things going on in the vocals on that record um there's a lot of doubling there's a lot of there's a lot of like more dynamic stuff happening. Whereas this record, we kept it really straight and it was, a little, it came off maybe a little bit boring, I think, but it, but it was, yeah, it was just sort of like a childish pushback that, you know, it was the first time ever we were getting notes. Like while we were recording from a record label, victory always just left us alone and we did what we wanted to do creatively. And we turned our record in and he always was like, cool guys. And these guys were like sending notes. And then, flying to the studio and trying to be involved and, and wanting to hear daily mixes and, you know, all that kind of stuff that you always heard about happening. And so we were like, oh, no, no, no. They're going to try to pull some bullshit here, you know? And so we, yeah, I don't know. We just sort of childishly went the other way with it. And I think the record came off a bit flat because of it. Um there's certainly some great stuff on it. I think there's some, it has its moments, but I, it's sad to me. It had, a, it had a lot more potential. And I, I always feel like it was one of the ones that was a letdown personally. Cause I, I know how it could have been, how it could have come out and it, it never really hit meet, uh, met its mark. I think.
0: Well, I think, you know, I think, you know, you're, obviously your harshest critic as as a diehard Earth Crisis fan, you know, it's not the strongest, but I still think it's got some bangers on there. It's still fucking it's Earth Crisis. Um thank you. I think it's funny how you mention or ironic that you mentioned that you were worried about the late nineties thing and then probably the biggest controversial album for Earth Crisis fans (laughs) is the one you did next, which was Slither, which had new metal dashes and drabs in it for Um, sure yeah for sure (laughs) how do you you go being pushing back and making sure you're not changing to suddenly going actually let's change a little bit
1: well i think that that that's exactly i think that dynamic sums up earth crisis it's a it it's a band of extremes like the individuals involved are are extreme personalities the it, you know, and, and that was exactly what it was, right. It was all the way th- to one end of the stick to all the way to the other end of the stick, you know, it, so we, we did that record and everybody sort of felt like that, right. It was, it was a bum out of a time it, in our lives in general, because we, we also had other things going on, um, uh, that played into the record on personal levels. Like there was legal issues for three of us. We had been involved in some, uh, like a fight situation. And, and so three of us were looking at going to jail during the mixing of that record and um so yeah it was like it it was a bad time it it was like it was just sort of you know really bad phase in our lives so um coming off that you know we all were like okay well look we've been around for 10 years and we put out like you know i don't remember how many records at that point how many full lengths four or five like what are we going to do you know like we've kind of reached the end of the rope here as far as like what what we can, what we have to say musically, unless we do something drastic. And that was the conversation was, well, what if we do exactly what we were afraid everybody thought we were going to do, right? Like, what if we, what if we totally flipped it and we're like, we give people exactly what they expect, right? Like, you know, this is what you thought we were going to do on Roadrunner. Well, now that we're back on Victory, we're going to do that, you know? <laughs> so that was, that was literally the... That was the blueprint. That was the, the conversation that became Slither. It was like, OK, well, let's 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 go to the other end of the spectrum now. Let's do it backwards, you know, which in hindsight was a poor business decision. But, <laughs> but create creatively. I mean, it, it kept us interested. And I think if we didn't do Slither at that point, we probably just would sort have of broke up because I think we just didn't have any ideas on where to go. We felt like we we felt like we crossed all these different bridges already. Like we didn't really have, we, and we weren't the kind of band that was settle for writing the same record. I mean, if you go back and listen to our catalog, they're they're all pretty different up until maybe these recent three. Mm. You know, from two from two thousand seven or eight onward, they're those are sort of all in a similar vein, but um, up until that point, though, they were all very different sounding records. Um, but yeah, Slither and and a funny story about Slither is so our A&R guy, like while we were, we ended up recording Slither right outside New York City. And the a guy from Roadrunner came to the studio and was like, well, this is what we wanted you guys to do. And we were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> he's <laughs> like, and he's like, this is awesome. He's like, I'm so there was a there was a conversation that I don't know how serious anybody really entertained it it being us the band and also the label but there was a conversation about coming back to Roadrunner with that record during the recording of it would you guys if we could get you out of your deal with Victory would you guys want to put this out with us Mm -hmm. you know and and we were I I think we all kind of laughed at the idea but you know because that that would just be ridiculous but and I don't know in history that that's ever happened, right? We would, would we have been the only band to get dropped, not even make another record with someone else and then get re-signed? I, like, I, don't, even, I don't even know. But that, but yeah, that was very much a, a conversation that was had. Like, well, guys, this is what we wanted you to do. And we were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> you know? We know.
0: Yeah, but you're not getting it, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you're not getting it. These other guys are going to get it. <laughs> yeah, it was
0: weird. You, you mentioned in there, you know, when... You know, you kind of, after Slither, you guys obviously, understandably, kind of reached a point where it was a bit burnout going on. Mm -hmm. You know, life, I think sometimes uh, fans of bands forget that members in a band put life on hold. And sometimes when you reach a stage after 10 or so years, the natural want to go back to doing some life is going to happen. So... For sure. You guys, you know, kind of stepped away for six years and then you reformed in... 2007 and Mm -hmm. it now three recent releases most recent one was 2014 salvation of innocence a fucking Mm -hmm. barn burner of a fucking album people um thank you thank you it feels like the band is still relevant and has things to say but surely also you guys must find it hard to play the fine line of being still relevant and not falling into the legacy nostalgia element?
1: Yeah. Well, I've, I think, I think until recently, people in the band did struggle with that. I've kind of come to terms with that maybe then earlier than the other guys did, I think. Um, I mean, I write most of the stuff and I, it, it, not throughout the whole career. It was a pretty 50 50 between like Ian and the R bass player and myself um, going on. I mean, you know, other people contributed for sure, but I'd say he and I wrote the bulk of the the early stuff. Um, but then, yeah, as the as the rec- as they progressed, I ended up kind of taking the reins and doing most of the heavy lifting as far as the writing went. Um, but yeah, for the last three records that we did, I, like you know, it takes the wind out of your sails. It's like worked super hard on them. You know, we put it, we put a lot into it and then, yeah, you put it out and it, it kind of falls a little bit flat. And then you go play shows and people just want to hear your first three records, which is like, I can't blame anybody. I mean, I'm the same, right? Like for bands I love, you know, I I mean, I like a lot. I'm, I'm the guy that will like a band's sellout album best, you know, (laughs) but, but, you know, typically, yeah, you know, you want to hear like a certain era of a band that you got into them and, And I think maybe if we stick around for long enough, there'll be younger generations that know Earth Crisis through to the death and neutralize the threat and salvation innocence, you know. But, yeah, it takes the wind out of your sails a little bit when you're like, you know, bust your ass for a year and a half on a record and then it just kind of falls flat a little bit. And, you know, you know, it's solid, you know, like I know, like, you know, not not to be egotistical. I'm very critical of of myself, but I know those records are pretty solid albums, Mm. you know. Like I, I feel very confident in saying that. But um yeah, yeah, so it took the wind out of my sails and I just I had to come to the terms like hey guys, I think we're just I think we're one of those bands, like we've hit this we've hit this mark where people are gonna like our first three records and we can always play shows and we're always gonna but I don't know about new stuff, you know? And um there was other things involved in it too. Like we none of us really live close to each other and everybody's super busy with these other aspects of life that they have. And we've tried to write music and it, you know, it's not anyone's priority anymore. And if people aren't making it a priority, then it basically never happens. Right. Mm. Right. It's like, it's gotta be a priority. It has to be a family member, you know, a band, a band has to be, has to have a place at the table with the family. Mm. It has to, or, or if it doesn't, if it doesn't, then nothing's ever going to happen. So it's one of your kids, you have to think of it like that. And it needs attention just like the other kids do, you know? Um, and yeah, it wasn't getting that, you know, it, it just, and then not to blame anyone oh, totally understandable. I mean, we've been doing this for, for so long and it's like, yeah, you want to, you got other priorities in life. That's fine. Um, but yeah, I think I was maybe the first to come to terms with, with that idea. And then I think the other guys have all come around now to realizing, cause you know, it's, it's obvious we go and play shows and that's what people want to hear. It's like, you know, firestorm you know, Destroy the Machines, Gamora Season Ends, like, might, some, some to the death songs actually, oddly have become set staples, which is great, but after that, I don't think anyone has any idea, (laughs) like, if we played a song, I don't, not many people would, would be aware of, like, a Neutralizer Threat song, or a Salvation of Innocent song at this point, yeah, um, yeah, but, I mean, again, it's, you know, it just is what it is, I mean, I still love making music, and, I, I like it doesn't again it's the it's the back to the early earlier part of the conversation it's the zero tolerance right mm. I don't do it I don't I don't make music for the accolades you know I I make it cuz it's that's what I do that's just it's in me to do that so I'm never going to stop doing it I'm 46 years old I haven't stopped yet um there's always going to be outlets for for writing music and stuff but I think I think earth crisis is one of those ones where you know it's it's it is sadly to say a nostalgia kind of band for a lot of people, you know, when we play, when we play like a this is hardcore fest or or place things like that, I mean the shows are great, you know. Couldn't ask for a better re- reaction. As it being being how old we are and everything we've been through, but yeah, it's obvious which songs get the the responses, you know.
0: Well, you certainly aren't lacking, as you said, in the want to write music because the next two projects. I want to talk about is Sect, obviously, and the listeners know from having Chris on the show, and then also the one that is about to release an album, which is Tooth and Claw, and the album comes out May twenty first, Dream of mm-hmm. Ascension. You mm-hmm. clearly still have an unbelievable wealth of writing stuff in your brain. Like it's they're very different bands, but they're also they're heavy as fuck. Like it's it's crazy. Thanks.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I love writing music. You know, I, I really do. And sect is awesome. And it was a nice, um, it is a nice, I, we haven't done anything for so long now because of the pandemic. I, I always think of it in the past tense, but we will. And, and, uh, but it, it was, a, it was a really nice, like kind of palate cleanser from earth crisis because it's so different. Right. It's like when I do something, I don't, you know, I, I don't want everyone to be like, oh, this is Earth Crisis part two. You know, it's guys from Earth Crisis It's going to sound just like Earth Crisis, you know. And sect was that thing that was like, oh, this is so different. It's like a different, a totally different crowd, you know, a totally different type of person is going to like sect. And there's certainly some overlap. But for me, it was it was a nice, you know, like I said, palate cleanser. The, the riffs aren't the same. I, I wouldn't think of a I wouldn't think of an Earth Crisis part going into a sex song and there may be a little bit of overlap there, but for the most part, it's just a completely different mindset. And and I'm not the, the great thing that I love about sex is I'm not the, I'm not driving the boat. I'm not the band dad, so to speak. You know, it, it's, it's really Jimmy is, is sort of that he fills that role. I might be the band mom you know, <laughs> he's, he's the, he's the, he's the, the leader and the driver of the boat in, in that regard. He, he kind of sets the tone for what the records are going to sound like. And then I do my best to contribute a- along those guidelines. So, um, and again, he doesn't like me saying that, like I've said that multiple times, but it's just the truth. And, and I don't have any, I don't have a pride or ego about it. You know, it, 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 it is what it is, you know, and he, he deserves credit for it because he, he absolutely came up with the style and the, and the idea for the band really that, that just sort of felt right when we, we messed around with a lot of different things before we landed on what sect was actually going to be. And, um, yeah, it, it. He he's the he's the leader and the and the and the boat driver and that and that one. So I just have to fit the bill and be like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. All right, let me see if I can come up with a handful of songs that that fall into that category.
0: Well, what um, about um, what about Tooth and Claw though? Are you the are you the band dad in that band?
1: Yeah, that now that I will say is that's a me thing, a hundred percent. That that's a that's a selfish thing. That's it, it's maybe to the to the other extreme. It's sort of the. It's sort of the I don't want to collaborate band (laughs) Um, (laughs) and and not because I've bad experiences or anything like that. It's just, you know, like you you do have to compromise, I suppose, on on things that, you know, that other people don't see the they don't see the vision. They don't have the same vision for at times, you know, Earth Crisis or sect. And so this is the for me, Tooth and Claw is the like, well, it's my vision and I'm going to see it through thanks for being thanks for being on board, but I'm gonna you know th- this is this is I'm gonna see this through to the end the way I wanted to, for good or bad. you know, maybe'll maybe there'll be some misses. you know, maybe it didn't maybe it didn't deliver the way I expected it to, but yeah, that that was sort of my uh, selfish project. It is my selfish project.
0: i'm I'm quite excited by it. You know at this point, you know the album is still two weeks from coming out. Um, but I'm excited by it based off the singles because you threw a curveball in there that I wasn't expecting. And it's a hammer to the head, but with melody. And mm. listeners might freak out. They go, oh, shit, melody. Musically, yeah, yeah. musically melody, like instrumentational melody. Yeah. Not, not vocal stuff, the instruments. Yeah. And I like that, the curveball that you've thrown at me with the first singles, Your Crucifixion and 70 times 7. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's clear to me that with everything that you've done, you aren't also ashamed or worried about exploring avenues like Melody.
1: No. Yeah, not at all. I, I, truthfully, I mean, I might hinder myself in, in that in that world. I mean, I, I, think I have a tendency I to go a little bit too far with it. There's probably a million files on my computer that, that are just too much over the top as far as like melodic stuff in, in a way that I didn't pull it off, you know, where it, I want it. I like melody, but it has to have a certain feel to it. You know, it has to, has to be kind of haunting, not poppy, you mm. know? And I think I, for years I've sort of been trying to find that because I'm not, I'm not like super, versed musically like i don't i'm not i'm not really i'm actually probably no more now over the last couple years than i ever have my whole life as far as like you know certain modes and things like that that sound haunting and stuff like i i always wanted to do that but they always sort of sound they always came off not the way i envisioned them but i think the tooth and claw i've had moments here and there where i pulled it off but i think the tooth and claw record overall sort of hits that mark i where i've I've found what I was trying to do for a lot of years, as far as like having melodic parts go um, where they actually sound more haunting than they do maybe like poppy or happy.
0: Well, it's also a band that is, it's a bit interesting that you guys obviously must have formed while this pandemic was going on. So how did that come about? And then the second part of the question is you are also releasing uh, an album during a pandemic um, and that's a bit different than what you probably used to, because you can release and do a release show and do a kind of tour here and there. So both yeah. questions, you know, how did it form and what's it like releasing an album during all this chaos?
1: Yeah. it. So it was actually going on before the pandemic. I, um, and a, on a very unofficial level, I had had this, um, I had no Daniel for a while. He, um, he, his band die young had played some shows with sect and he was also Sect's uh booking agent um for a little bit of time and, and he retired from the booking thing but we've jimmy has known daniel for longer than i have but we've been friends for a little while and i have been working on this music on the side for a few years and um i knew i wanted to get something going with it, but I was sort of dragging my feet on it. And I had always kept thinking like, I'll ask Daniel if he wants to do vocals on this stuff, you know, cause he had expressed wanting to do something with me before. And so I had always been thinking, well, I'll, I'll ask him, I'll ask him, you know, but the pandemic was the thing that kind of kicked that in the ass because I didn't have any excuses anymore. You know, I, I wasn't, we had been really busy with sect really busy for me with sect over the last couple of years um, busier than I than I anticipated, we would be with, with a band like that, and um, and so I never really had a moment to, to really do it. So yeah, when this happened, everything came to a screeching halt. You know, Earth Crisis really only plays shows. Um, we don't really do much as far as writing goes. Uh, so yeah, I I had nothing but time to explore these songs. So I I contacted Daniel. I'd say last. April about a year ago a little over a year ago and I was just like hey would you want to you know would you want to do a project with me like do a band and and he said yeah he didn't even he hadn't even heard anything He was like yeah and so I just immediately sent him four songs and I was like so what do you think you know and he was (laughs) like oh man yeah they're great yeah and and he he got you know vocals back to me super quick and originally it was just going to be an EP um but then we started talking to a few labels about releasing it and Nobody was too keen on an EP and I understand why it's like all the work of an LP, you know, none of the return, as far as <laughs> you know, money goes. So, you know, then I was like, well, I mean, we're still sitting here locked in up in our houses and not able to do anything. I'm sure I can churn out a couple more, you know? And so we wrote, we just started writing more songs and it clicked. Like I liked his, I liked his delivery and I liked the lyrical content and the imagery that he was putting forth. I mean, we had a conversation about that you know, going into it. Um, we wanted to do something different than both of us had done in the past. So as well as all the members, you know, as all the members of the band, we always knew, like we wanted everyone to be vegan straight edge, you know? And I, if, if it was up to me, everything that I ever did from here on out would be just because it's easier. And it, it, you know, it's like dealing with family,
2: mm.
1: you know, you go out on the road and everybody has the same ideas. Let's go eat. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. You know, it's, it's, it's more familiar and you don't have that one lone guy that's, you know, motivated, has other motivations uh, of the day for us. It's all the same motivation. Let's eat, let's go play the show. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So we, we knew we wanted it to be different. And so we had discussed like imagery and, and, you know, lyrical content and stuff. And he did a great job, man. I mean, he, I was super happy with like, I'd get the songs back and, they were super tastefully done and the, the lyrics were obviously had a lot of time put into them, a lot of thought put into them, a lot of heart put into them. And so, yeah, I was, I was really happy about it. And, um, I look forward to doing more, honestly, you know, now, I, now I feel, I, I feel happy that like, Oh cool. So now when I write, you know, these songs that don't fit for these other things that i cause I mean, I've written stuff like tooth and claw for years and it just, a lot of it didn't really seem to fit with either thing I was doing. So now there's an outlet, you know, for it. And and we're on the same page. You know, he's he's got life. I got life, so it's not like we could tour full time, but we absolutely want to try to play shows and so yeah, it's it's nice, you know, everybody's on the same page with it. And I'm I'm very thankful that Cameron and and Jimmy um helped us out with it too, you know, because they're awesome guys and if we do have to ride around in a van with other people, they I can't think of better people to ride around in a van with. So <laughs> Yeah, but it it is a bit of a bummer, like you said. That I'm really proud of the record, and and I would love to like. I think that the songs would be really powerful live, and it and it's it's a bummer, but it bums me out that I haven't had the experience yet of doing
0: that, and
1: I don't have any end in sight as to when I will be able to have the experience of mm. doing that. So that's frustrating.
0: That is part of the problem with what we're going through. But I also think it's mm-hmm. interesting, and I think it's good that. You know all the projects that you have had going or do have going you know and i include path of resistance in this as well is mm-hmm. there's always a message in there and we've spoken about it but i think it's important now because i don't know how you feel but personally i might sound a bit tainted to listeners being in my late 30s nearly 40 i feel like a lot of bands are, are shying away from having a message in their music
1: yeah. Yeah, I think so for sure, for for sure. I I mean and I think it's more important now than ever, you know? I mean like mm-hmm. I, you know, I actually uh, talked to Jimmy a lot about stuff like this and um I think he he was he's uh, has a similar mindset to me, you know? Like we always earth crisis we would always talk about like ha- you know, writing a an anti-racist song or something. Like a blatantly anti-racist song, but we always kind of figured naively like very naively like well that's been done like do we really need to say that again everyone gets it right everyone gets it not that we ever felt racism was eradicated or anything stupid like that we mm-hmm. we knew that racism still existed but we always i think we always tried to talk about things that we didn't feel like were being talked about that much and every band that we grew up with had an anti-racist song but you know or stuff that's happened over the last four or five years and stuff that's currently still happening and our country and around the world. You know, I'm like, wow, like we should have paid more attention to that, you know? Yeah. Obviously, not everyone got the memo, mm. you know, mm. and 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 yeah, so I think it's super important. I mean, it's it's really important to like talk about things and and, and reach people at a young age before these bad ideas take hold, you know, Be, because somebody's going to you know if it's not your ideas somebody else's ideas are going to take hold of these impressionable people right so it, it you know it, it may as well be somebody with good intentions versus somebody with bad intentions you know and yeah i i, I kind of regret that's you know if i had a regret it's that none of none of the bands i've ever done really spoke out in an anti-racist fashion and it wasn't because we were it weren't anti-racist it it was just because we thought it had been said and it didn't why you know do we really need to beat that that dead horse up again and write an anti-racist song it's kind of cliche every band has one you know and uh yeah i I think that it needs to be obviously very much needs to be said Uh, especially kids growing up in this this day and age where all of a sudden you're you know you're like what happened did we go back in time like 50 years like what Mm -hmm. is going on
0: right now well, I think, so, it's, I think it's also important because they usually say that the music or art of the time reflects what's happening in society and without bands like that you do and are part of, to be perfectly honest, and I'm not talking down or degrading what they do creatively, but a lot of the bands, a high percentage, I look out and I don't see them using their platform to spread a message or empower the listeners to look into certain things that need to be looked into um, so I think right. it's important that bands like tooth and claw sect and earth crisis uh, listen to for for everyone
1: yeah yeah thank you and I, and I think it's important too I mean I, I mean if there's one thing that I mean there's many things'm I'm, I'm proud of with earth crisis but I mean one of the things that makes me most proud is you know when I get a message from people on you know, whether, you know, whatever social media platform and, and, and people just talk about that impact, you know, like how we led them down a certain ideological pathway, Mm. you know? And I'm like, wow, I mean, thanks for showing up at the show and singing along and buying merch and everything, but damn, we like set you on a path. Like, you know, we helped, we helped guide you, you know, in, in a way like that, that there's no words for, for how important that, is you know and 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 a bit of a and a bit of a burden it feels like too like wow hopefully we didn't do you wrong you know (laughs) hopefully you know because we certainly have made mistakes i mean there's no question about that but you know when somebody when somebody tells you like you know you shaped uh, you were were pivotal in like shaping a part of my life it's it's there's no words to, to describe how important that is you know I mean, because I know, I know how important it was for me. and bands did that for me, you know.
0: Well, my response to that is fuck yes. It's it's sick. It's epic. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And dude, not a lot, not a lot of people get that. You know, it's it's an amazing thing. You know, if the music dried up today, which you know, touch wood, I'm touching wood now. It doesn't. But if it did, <laughs> if it did, then look. No one, not many people can say that they that is part of the legacy they leave behind. It's an amazing yeah. thing, dude. Uh,
1: it's honestly I'm, that's yeah, that's the most proud thing I, I I have to leave behind with all that. You know, it's like if we if we didn't play another show. I mean, as as much as I I want to, and I think we will, but I mean, if we didn't, I mean, knowing that you know there were so many people that we helped guide in a, in a certain direction. And, you know, truth be told, you know, people that, that went on to uh, further the ideology in ways that we never even thought to, you know, taking it into, into avenues that we were ignorant to that, that now I see, you know, next generations and I'm, and I think about it and I'm like, wow, yeah. Okay. I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that aspect of things, you know? I mean, you know, cause we were, we were, one track minded like we didn't think too much on I mean we did but I mean we didn't we didn't make a a message of the band so much to be about women's empowerment and stuff like that and and then I saw the next generations that were that were carrying the vegan straighters message into those avenues and I was like hell yeah that's that's the way this is supposed to work Mm -hmm. because now I now I learned from you you know we helped you and then you guys furthered that and now I've learned from you you know Love so it. Yeah. it really is. A, yeah, it's a it's a it you know, the whole vegan straightish thing is really it's a beautiful movement. I mean, certainly has its drawbacks and, you know, it's full of crazy people that act crazy <laughs> sometimes. But <laughs> but it, but at its core, I mean, it's it, it's a it's a really beautiful ideology that I that I hope continues and I hope the bands continue and, you know, if if I can get my kids into playing music, I hope they continue it. And it's like I said earlier, like, I don't have any desire to do a band that's not a vegan straight-edge band at this point. Because there was a period in time when the musicianship was lacking, in my opinion. Because that was just as important to me. I didn't want to do something like half-assed, you know. I wanted it to be professional. I thought you could have both. Mm. But nowadays, it's it's not like that. There's There's kids, younger people, kids that... I mean, could outplay me any day of the week and that are that are vegan straight edge, you know. But back in the day, I think Dennis Earth Crisis drummer was, in my opinion, the only decent vegan straight edge drummer that existed on the planet. <laughs> like, <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't another one, but that's not the case anymore. There's there's a lot now. So mm-hmm. nobody has an excuse. Everyone get out there and start a vegan straight edge band. There's there's plenty of there's plenty of solid drummers. You can do it. The talent is incredible. It, I mean, the kids are so like younger people. I say kids; they're not really kids, but younger people are incredible. Like,
0: well, think it, of all it's those. really.
1: I mean, Cameron. It, Cameron's a perfect example. That plays drums on the the Tooth and Claw album. He 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 came in. He plays for um he plays bass in Magnitude and he plays drums in Eco Strike and um we needed a fill in drummer for Sect and he's local and we had seen him play and we were like, hey, can you you know, do you think you could play like sex stuff? I mean, we're going to Europe and we need somebody to go. And he had never, I believe the story was he had never done a blast beat before. Whoa. And he was like, yeah, I think I can, you know, he showed up to practice and dude, he just like unbelievably killed it. Like we were just like, Oh dude, you crushed it. And he's like, yeah, I never did that before. I just went <laughs> home and tried it. <laughs> like what? <laughs> you know I mean? That's like, yeah, but he's a, he's such a, he's such a talented person and, awesome guy like yeah i was really, really happy when he agreed to to play in toothless claw because he's, he's an awesome dude great musician and younger he's not a kid but he's younger
0: <laughs> yeah cle- clearly talented just based off what i've heard um yeah now very much i've before we wrap things up i got one last question i want to ask about and you know it's about the industry and i think it's interesting to get different perspectives and ideas and opinions on it and I wondered from your experience with going through a time when everything was about the physical release and it was about how many sales you got and what chart position you got. To nowadays, you don't need to be on a label. You don't need to sell physical copies. It's just all about the streaming. You know, there's upsides and downsides to everything. You know, a downside now is I think attention spans are less, but then an upside of that... Is that your music can get into parts of the world it normally wouldn't. So the long-winded way of getting to the question, which I was eventually <laughs> getting there, is: where do you see the industry now for an artist or musician in 2021?
1: Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, I have as being an old guy and, and doing the bulk of the, my heavy lifting in the quote-unquote industry. You know, in, in the age of CDs, you know, it, it's it is very hard for me to understand. Um, and, and it's, di- and it's disheartening. It's kind of like what I, what I was saying earlier about like salvation and innocence to neutralize the threat. Mm-hmm. Like when those records came out, the, the labels, the label century media, well, century media was one and the candlelight was the other, but they, um, they were both like very pleased with pre-orders.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They were doing pre-orders and which, uh, I, uh, that whole concept, I I don't like the, the pre-order thing, but like, um. Anyway, they they were doing pre-orders and and they were very excited about how many pre-orders we had done, you know and and so I was oh well, what did what did we do you know and they're telling me and I was so utterly disappointed, you know <laughs> I was like what what do you what do you mean they're like you know and they were like oh it's not you know and they would always have to tell the old man well, it's not it's not like in your day you know it, you, you know you can't expect you can't expect those numbers and I'm like no I understand that I understand that but God I don't want to hear that you know. <laughs> I don't want to hear how little that was, you know? And, and yeah, I mean, I've, I doing sect for the last couple of years and putting three records out. And, and now I, you know, obviously I get it a lot more, maybe get it a lot more than people my age that haven't been continuously playing, um, and putting records out, but it's still hard to accept and hard to understand, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all, it seems, you know, it's all about like playlists. I mean, you know, doing a podcast, right? I mean, it's, it, it it's, it's weird. You're selling something and it, it's, it's hard to really uh, manipulate the social media in a way to get yourself seen,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know? And that's what a lot of it is, right? It's, it's manipulation. It's like getting on playlists or getting on podcasts or there it's, it's a very different um, marketing strategy for lack of a better term. <laughs> uh, it, it's, You know, it is, it's, I mean, you know, Tooth and Claw, for example, obviously we're promoting this record and, um, the biggest thing that we saw happen was we got added to like a playlist on Spotify, I think. And all of a sudden, like our Spotify monthly listeners jumped by like 500, 600, 700 or whatever, you know? And and we were like, what happened? You know, oh, we just got on some playlist, Mm. you know? So, so it's like, you start to realize like, oh, that's the important stuff now, you know? Mm how many, how many playlists are you on? Like, you know, how many, how many monthly listeners do you have on title on Spotify and blah, 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 blah. It's just, yeah. For an old man, it's hard to, hard to wrap his head around. Cause I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, like when this comes out, how many people bought vinyl and all that's sort of irrelevant, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's a nice little token, you know, that people bought, but there's a, there's a success is measured differently. I guess that's the, short way of saying this long-winded thing i'm trying to say success is measured very differently what's what's the success is not necessarily how many vinyl you sold right it's it's more like how many streams did you get it is and there's a whole and there's a whole strategy to going about getting those streams because there's a million bands there's there's like 10 times more bands than there were back in 1995 <laughs> there's like, there's a million bands because everyone can make music in their bedroom and everyone has access to the world.
0: Well, it's, you know, but, it's important to adapt and change. And that's the other thing nowadays. It seems like as soon as any band gets control and learns what's the current way of doing things, right? It shifts gears a bit. And it's like, well, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Now I've got to change again. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very much. I mean, this pandemic threw everybody through a loop, right? Mm. I mean, people had, I feel like people had just started figuring out a model. Like how this is going to work, you know, and then and the, and that model was based around live shows. Labels were still surviving because they were taking a piece of every aspect of a band, you know, merch and everything. Then all of a sudden and, and so live shows, it was like it wasn't weird for a band to, to charge 30 bucks to for a show because, you know, they had to make their money somewhere. Nobody's buying records. So we're going to get you at the door, you know, when you come see live music. And that was still working for people. But then that obviously came to a screeching halt. So there goes that. There goes that. You know, model. Now it's time to come up with a new model. You know, live streams and and stuff like that. Which, whew, I don't know if I can bring myself to do one of those. But
0: <laughs> yeah. we'll see. We'll
1: see how desperate I get.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I find them a bit weird. It's my personal opinion. I find it a bit weird. Um, Some
1: bands do mm. it awesome. I, I think between the buried and me did it. Did a really. But there is different kinds of bands, right? Mm. I mean, they're, you want to watch the musicianship, you want to watch them play, you want to watch, you know, that's you. That's so it works for some bands, but you know, like a band like Earth Crisis, I don't think that would work because like 90% of the show is what the crowd is bringing to the show. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, sure, you know, I like to think we do our thing okay and we play tight and, and everything and professional, but the truth of it is, we could probably. Play like shit And if the crowd Was feeling it that night They were gonna make it They were gonna make that show A hundred percent You know So Yeah Ninety percent of You know An Earth Crisis show Is the crowd So I don't know that a live stream Would really work for a band Like Earth Crisis Or Sect Same same for Sect You know yes. Would that work Or would it just feel, would it just feel weird it just feel hollow Right Awkward
0: Yeah, but see, I think only a band, like you said, Between the Buried and Me can get away with it because it is really heavily musician-based. Not to say other music isn't, but it's like an eight-minute song is a lot going on. But a four-minute mosh song in a live stream feels weird to me because there is no, as you said, fan feedback, crowd movement, uh, mic grabs, anything. It comes across a bit hollow.
1: Yeah, that's what people are watching as much as they're watching the band. They're watching what the crowd is doing. So, exactly. without we're taking away 50% of the the entertainment, you know. And I think uh Behemoth was another live stream I watched some of, not the whole thing, but they they were amazing because the the whole the whole imagery of the band just works, like mm-hmm. right? If you got the if you got the money to have like, you know, fire breathers and and, you know, you know, women dancing with silks and stuff, you know, and people juggling and crazy stuff. Like, cool. I want to see it. Awesome. You know, but, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think any of my bands would, would
0: work in that arena. No, it's a weird arena. Um, <laughs> yeah. Weird arena. Now, before we wrap things up, I have to mention again, and everyone that hears either side of this interview on the podcast will hear it anyway, but um, Tooth and Claw Dream of Ascension is the name of the album, May 21st, through Good Fight Music. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not quite finished with you, but almost. Okay. What I do is everyone gets a segment called Pick Your Poison. Now, it's more fun than it sounds. It sounds quite vicious, but it's not. What it is is I'm going to find out what makes you tick, and it's from a food standpoint, music standpoint, and movie standpoint. What what I do is I give you an option of two, you pick your favorite of the two, you do not need to justify your answer, but (laughs) if you're worried about why that was your pick, you can tell us why it's your pick, okay? Okay, yeah, sure. Now, all food options are vegan, of course, okay? Okay. Now, pizza or burger? Uh,
1: Burger, I have to go with burger.
0: Okay, Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway? Oh, Indian, for sure. Okay. Soft taco or crunchy taco? Crunchy taco. Okay. Taco or nacho? Uh,
1: oof. That's a. Mm, nacho. I'm gonna say nacho.
0: Okay. Do you like guac or are you a no guac?
1: Oh, guac. The more the better. Uh,
0: smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter?
1: You know, as of recently, crunchy peanut butter. But if you would have asked me this two years ago, I would have said smooth, but I've changed.
0: Really? What made you change?
1: You know, I I think it's just I never gave it a fair shake. And my kids like crunchy peanut butter, so that's what we've had. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like... I go for it. I don't want it. I don't want the smooth stuff anymore.
0: Hey. Okay. We I I <laughs> yeah. I try I try it, but I feel like I rip my bread with it and it just annoys yeah, me. Yeah,
1: well no, you know what? Because I eat it in different ways. I don't do so much sandwiches with it. Mm-hmm. I like I'll eat like apples with peanut butter Ooh, and nice. stuff like that. So yeah. I like the crunchy with that. Okay. Maybe that's weird. I don't know if people like apples and peanut butter, but I like to do that and it's it's I think that's better with crunchy peanut butter. But I need to have a crunchy somewhere in, in every equation.
0: In every I equation?
1: Find. Yeah, I, always, I, I don't like soft all the time. Like if I could have, if there was always an option, for example, bean burrito at Taco Bell, mm. great. Bean burrito with Fritos in it at Taco Bell, 10 times better.
0: <laughs> it's, all, it's all about <laughs> the crunch, clearly, all about the crunch. Yeah, you need the crunch, yeah. Um, are you going to have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea?
1: Oh, I'm having tea. I don't like coffee.
0: Would you, you know, you're going to have a meal and you can have it in any environment you want. Do you want to have it at home or would you like to dine out?
1: Uh, Well, yeah, I think home. I'm going to have to stay home. I'm a a terrible homebody. If I could stay home for pretty much everything, I think I would. But I I know it's good for me to get out, so I force myself. But my choice would be home.
0: Oh, you're a man after my heart. I'm the same. Yeah, I'm the same. (laughs) I'm the same. Um, new movie comes out. Do you want to see it at the cinema or on the couch at home? Mm, That's a tough, the cinema, if
1: it's not packed, Mm -hmm. if there's lots of people and it's like going to be a big movie, I'll do it. Like if it's a new star Wars movie or something, I'll be like, well, clearly this is going to be packed, but I want to see it at the cinema. But ideally I'd see it at the cinema, but, uh, lightly attended. cinema.
0: Yeah. Um, spend the day at the beach or spend the day at the snow? Hmm. I think I have to
1: pick, I don't, that's hard because I like to snowboard, but it gets miserable after a while because it's cold, but the beach has so much sand. So (laughs) 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 that's a hard one. It's like, that's kind of a 50, 50, but I guess because I enjoy snowboarding more than I enjoy anything I do at the beach, I'd have to pick snow.
0: Okay, okay. Um, Cat or dog?
1: Oh, man, this is another one that if you would have asked me this a few years ago, I would have said dog. But now I'm starting to like cats
0: a little bit more. Oh, no. Yeah. But I
1: still really like dogs. Okay. But I think I'm becoming a cat guy.
0: You sound very nervous You sound very nervous in that response Yeah,
1: I don't like saying it I don't like saying that out loud, but I think it's true I think I'm becoming a cat guy Like when you, when I'm scrolling through Instagram And you see people posting pictures I kind of stop and pause more on the cats I think now than I do the dogs So <laughs>
0: i'm a bit opposite if i see a dog i'll stop i'll look at it it gets an automatic like if i see a cat i tend to keep scrolling (laughs) i'm like "Mm -hmm." yeah i get
1: it i i would never criticize somebody for that because i i totally get it but i there's something about a cat like i'm i'm starting to like a cat and i always like cats we i grew up with cats i always liked them but i but i would have said dog instantly before (laughs) but now i'm starting to like cats i think
0: (laughs) um (laughs) A couple of movie ones and a couple of music ones, and then we're done. Um, Star Wars or Star Trek?
1: Oh, Star Wars. I have But I do like Star Trek. I enjoy Star Trek, but eh, no, not even close, though. They're still not close. Star Wars for me, all day.
0: Terminator or Predator? Oh, man. That's
1: super difficult. Um, I'm going to have to say Terminator.
0: Okay. Rambo or Rocky? Rocky, Rocky. Okay. Um, Slayer or Pantera?
1: Ooh. I'm going to say Slayer, but that, that made me – it made me pause. I had to stop and think for a minute, but Slayer. Yeah, the, the clear answer is Slayer there.
0: Uh, Anthrax or Testament?
1: Testament. No, no, no question. Hands down.
0: Terror or Madball? Madball. Hatebreed or Throwdown?
1: Hate breed. You got to like the – that's an easy – you got to like the first, right? Mm. You, you got to like the original. I mean, not that they're ripoffs of each other, but they're similar veins. Like one is clearly inspired by the other. So you got to like, you know, throw down I think Throwdown admitted that they were yeah, trying to be a joke. Ter- hate breed.
0: so. <laughs> yeah, they, like, they were. Like Dave – I had Dave on the show. Um, Dave Peters, the vocalist, yeah. and, yeah, he said the same thing. Um, yeah, I think that they've um,
1: admitted that a few times, so
0: um well next one should be a simple one metallica or megadeth
1: oh metallica for sure
0: okay um now last few you're gonna finally get back to playing a show do you want stage dives happening or mic grabs happening
1: stage dives first okay i I don't the mic grab thing freaks me out now you see Mm -hmm. that and you're just like that seems that seems like that was always a bad idea. Not, like now now you look at it and you're like that was a terrible idea, right?
0: Yeah. And and I'm you know, I'm also of the vein where I go to a live show to hear the band play. I don't want to hear the random guy at the front row not be able yeah, to Yeah, you don't want to hear the,
1: it. right. You don't want to hear their shitty voice. No. You want to hear the you want to hear the singer's shitty voice, not the <laughs> not the other guy's shitty voice. <laughs> no, that's just and and also it's You know, I don't know your experience with this, but every band that I have ever been in, every show that I have ever played, I don't think any of the singers I've ever been involved with have ever brought their own mic to a show.
0: No, it's a very rare thing. Very rare. And they
1: absolutely should always have been doing that,
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: you know, but they never do. And it's yeah, with the with the state of the world now putting a microscope up to all this stuff that was a really bad idea. <laughs> like, it's amazing that these singers aren't dropping dead left and right from all sorts of things.
0: I know. And you see some photos of these mics that are in these venues, and you go, oh, God. Oh,
1: yeah, oh. they look terrible. We, you know, we did have a sound guy once who used to take all the caps off and soak them in rubbing alcohol before the show. Oh, nice! And I remember that. Yeah, I remember thinking that's the smartest thing ever. But we never carried on the tradition after that. <laughs> like, he, when he left, when he wasn't with us anymore, that was the end of that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. All right. You're you're going to a show. You're getting out of the house. You're forcing yourself to get out. Are you going to watch the show from the pit or up the back by the sound desk?
1: Oh, uh, I'm I'm in the back for sure.
0: Second last one. Let's imagine you can have one without the other, so they exist independently. Would you Mm -hmm. rather tour for the rest of your life or record music for the rest of your life?
1: Uh, Record music, for sure.
0: And the last one is the only triple one. I'm going to give you, let's say, Master of Puppets by Metallica. Now, the way I give it to you is the only way you can listen to it. Are you having it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone?
1: I guess in this day, I'm going to have to have it on my phone. Yeah. Because that'll give me the more listening time, right? I mean, I can't carry a record player around.
0: Well, I mean, you could. You just need power everywhere you go. It's a bit yeah, awkward.
1: that would be a pain. Phone. Yeah, yeah it got to be on the phone.
0: Yeah. And as much as I hate
1: that, it has to be on the phone.
0: And cars don't even have CD players anymore. They're phasing no. that out.
1: Well, mine my, my Yeah, oddly, the my car still does, but it's also like seven years old. But
0: Yeah, mine does, and it's 14 years old, so that's probably why. Right. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, Scott, first thing I got to say, um, a lot of love, a lot of respect and a lot of appreciation for you, not only going over time, but giving me amazing conversation. Um, this is invaluable to me as a fan, but also for listeners. Um, I can't say thank you enough for giving me your time and energy. It It is meant the world. Oh, thank
1: you, man. Yeah, it's been fun. I've definitely enjoyed chatting with you.
0: Um, you're absolute legend um this is a bucket list moment for me so thank you for letting me achieve that
1: yeah yeah thanks again man honestly this was a good time so yeah and we'll stay in touch
0: oh thank you scott take care and um i'll speak to you soon
1: yeah take care man thanks again
0: Uh, bye
3: Their hands are forced, driven to quell. Too far, I've dug this blood.
0: So that was my chat with Scott of Earth Crisis, Sect and Tooth and Claw. And at the end there, you heard three tracks from Earth Crisis. The first track was Total War from the album Neutralize the Threat. Second track was No Reason, which is from the album Salvation of Innocence. And the last track was Two Ashes from the album To the Death. Now's the part of the show where I spark that thing inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So get into this music. Get online, stream it, download it, consume the fuck out of it. There's no excuse. There is so much that Scott has been a part of, and it's all fucking bangers. Also, don't forget to pre-save that Tooth & Claw debut album titled Dream of Ascension, which comes out next week, which is May 21st. Now, if you're into physicals, why don't you pre-order that Tooth & Claw album, or grab yourself a CD or a vinyl of something else Scott has been a part of. If you're into merch, grab yourself a shirt, a hoodie, or some shorts. Whatever you got to do, support Scott and his musical endeavours. I have to take this moment to thank Scott again. Thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect. Much appreciated. And that's it. That's the Mosh Zone episode 161. Done. Dusted. All wrapped up. Locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So, if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Also, don't forget, you can also get in touch through our email address which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.